Spelling bees were an unusual torture for the average grade school student. There are some people to which spelling comes naturally, and there are others whose brains scramble the letters around in a word, making it really hard to read, let alone spell. Studying for a spelling bee looks different for each person. Eventually, though, all students had to face the music, and they'd stand in front of the class as the teacher tries to mow them down like weeds, asking students to spell words they've never heard, they've never seen, and they've never used. And one by one, with all eyes on them, they try their best to spell. Learning how to spell words is hard, especially in the English language, where there's so many rules and there are so many exceptions to rules that you begin to wonder, is a rule really even a rule? When you had to question about how to spell a word, you ask somebody who you thought knew how to spell that word. And I'm guessing at some point in your lifetime, you heard the phrase, look it up in the dictionary, which either means, I don't know, I'm sorry, or it means I'm busy right now and I want you to get out of my hair for the rest of the day. How is a dictionary supposed to help you spell, spell a word? Are you supposed to read through every single word from the front cover until you find the word? Try every possibility until you find the right one? It would take you forever. Thankfully, nowadays we have the internet. And unfortunately, today's spellers will never have to look up how to spell a word in a dictionary. It's great to have all the answers to life's questions at the tips of our fingers. But be careful. Just because it's on the internet doesn't mean that it's all true, which you all well know. So where do you go when you're looking for answers? Where do you go when you're looking for life's big answers, or the question, answers to the big life questions? Where do you go when you're suffering? Where do you go when you're guilty? Where do you go when you die? God's word holds the answers to these questions. And I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 5, as we read verses 1 through 12. And we see how the psalmist answers these questions for us. Psalm chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And again, I'll invite you to stand if you're able out of respect for God's word. Psalm chapter 5. For the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness I will enter your house. At your holy temple I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth. 
Lord, that you would bring conviction of sin into our hearts, but you would also comfort us with the gospel. Comfort us with the truth of what you have done for us, Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 5 is one of the psalms of David. It's written by a man who would eventually be king. And it's unknown when this psalm was written, whether David was king at this time or just a lowly shepherd or somewhere in between. We aren't told the particular circumstances that are bothering him. But it seems here that there's a constant stressor. More than just a current, a present circumstance, and more than just a stressor, he's truly suffering. He's groaning and he's crying for help. And if I can assume our modern day masculinity onto David here, he's a man. And men don't generally groan and cry for help, do they? Unless they've got a case of the man flu. But that's for a different time. And if you don't know what that is, you can look it up later. But notice here that David is suffering. In verses 1 through 3, notice where he goes. He approaches the Lord. He approaches his king, his king and, and his God in the morning, each morning, every morning, he approaches the Lord's throne, pleading for intervention, asking God to do something about this suffering that he's experiencing. And again, we aren't told specifically what was causing David's suffering, but looking at the rest of this psalm, we can begin to imagine a picture where he is suffering from the wickedness of others. It seems to be that he is suffering from a wicked, arrogant liar who is out to get him. Does that sound like anybody that you know? We have those people in our own lives too, don't we? If you know David's life, if you're familiar with all that he had been through, that seemed to be a pretty constant occurrence in his life. From King Saul putting a bounty on David's head, saying there's a reward if you bring him to me dead. And eventually David's own son, who would betray him and set himself up against him, trying to take the throne away from his dad. David suffered from the wickedness of others pretty much his entire life. But David knew his king. David knew the Lord, his God. And in the midst of his suffering, he cries out to the Lord. David comforted himself here with the character of God. In verses 4 through 6, David comments on the Lord's holiness and the Lord's justice. Listen to what he says. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. As much as David suffered at the hands of the wickedness of men, he knew that one day it would all be taken care of. For the Lord is indeed just. He doesn't tolerate evil or wickedness. It's more intense than that, though. He hates all who do iniquity. He hates all who do wrong. He hates all evil doers. You've probably heard the statement before that God hates sin, and yet he loves the sinner. And maybe you've even said it yourself, but what does this verse say, though? And is this verse true? Is this verse God's inerrant, inspired truth? It is. And this verse says that not only, does God hate, not only does God hate the wrongdoer, does God hate the sinner. But verse 6 explains what happens to people who speak falsehood, to those who lie. In our minds, well, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's okay to give a white lie every now and then. But to those who speak falsehood, the Lord destroys them. 
And if the Lord destroys those who simply lie in our own opinion, it doesn't bode well for anyone who does iniquity. It doesn't bode well for the people whose wickedness is causing David to suffer. suffer. So where do you go when you're suffering? You approach the Lord who deals justly with the wicked, who will not let it slide, but the Lord who promises justice and promises vengeance, and you leave it in the Lord's hands. He is the one who will ultimately take care of it. That being said, though, that doesn't exclude our own taking action in this life either. If you're in an abusive relationship, you leave. If someone bullies you at school, you don't just deal with it yourself. You tell teachers and parents and other authorities. If someone else's wickedness is causing you to suffer here in this life, we have earthly resources to ensure that justice happens. And so we make use of those things. That's the Christian thing to do. However, know that in the end, no one escapes God's judgment either. And there is a heavenly justice that needs to be brought upon all who do wickedness. Upon every sinner. Which brings us to an uncomfortable reality. We have to pause here for a second. And look back at our, into our Bibles. And, and I'll invite you to look back into your Bibles. Do you see any asterisks in those verses there? Do you see any fine print there? Are there any exception clauses? Or we could ask this question, does the word all really mean all? Is it true that God hates all wrongdoers, all who do wicked, all who sin? And if so, we have to ask ourselves the question, does that include me? Have I lied? Have I sinned? Has my wickedness ever contributed to the suffering of anyone else? Whether it's a simple word that we say without thinking, whether it's gossip or slander or spiteful words, whether it's unforgiveness or harboring, uh, harboring hate for someone else, whether it's boastfulness or pride or any other doing of wickedness here that is against God's law, are we guilty of those things? And I think we all know the answer to that question. You're guilty, aren't you? I'm guilty too. So where do you go when you're guilty if it's true that God hates all who sin? Going back to spelling bees for a second, and for anyone who still has to endure that cruel and unusual punishment in the days ahead, take heart. Most people won't remember the word that got you out. Have you ever heard the statement, it doesn't matter in 20 years, no one will remember this? I did a little math, and my fifth grade class was a little over 20 years ago. And I remember a word that one of my friends got out on. It's a fifth grade spelling bee, and he's asked to spell the word bacon. And so my friend proceeds with confidence, and he says, B-A-K-I-N, bacon. And he was disappointed and shocked when he was told to sit down. That was incorrect. And I probably wouldn't have remembered that at all if he would have just stopped talking at that moment. But he kept talking. And he insisted that he was right. He insisted, he said, I thought you were talking about bacon like bacon a cake. That's how you spell it. He's probably just trying to save face, but it only made it worse. And here, 20 years later, he is a sermon illustration. If he's listening, I'm sorry. I won't tell anyone who you are. 
but he tried to justify himself. And no matter what words he said, doesn't change the fact that he spelt bacon wrong. And he was disqualified from the spelling bee. He had to sit down. He didn't go home to take, he didn't take home the bacon that day. Instead, the bacon sent him home. And as if spelling bacon wrong wasn't bad enough, my friend embarrassed himself further by trying to make it better. Don't we do the same thing, though? Don't we try to justify ourselves when we're guilty? It's easier to blame some circumstance or to come up with some excuse rather than saying, I was wrong, or I sinned, or I am guilty. If a cop pulls you over for speeding, you say, I'm sorry, officer, I just really need to get to this place. When in reality, you probably should have left 10 minutes earlier and everything would have been fine. We're always trying to justify ourselves because we have to save face. The problem is we can't save face before a holy God. It's useless. He knows who we are. He knows what we've done. He knows the motives behind our actions as well. He sees our hearts. We can't cover up our own wickedness. We can't undo our sin or take it back or simply say, I didn't mean that. We can't take back the lies we've said or the suffering that we've caused our neighbor. And we can't make up for it either, no matter how hard we try. And whoever that neighbor might be, we're guilty. So the question comes, where do we go? If the psalm were to end on verse 6, the best thing that we could do would be to try to find some place hidden from the sight of God. But unfortunately, that place doesn't exist. And if it did exist, it would be so full of guilty sinners that you wouldn't want to be there anyway. However, in verse 7, we're told of a safe place. David writes, But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow in reverence for you. The safest place to be is in the very sanctuary of the Lord, in his holy temple, that same Lord who hates sinners. So how can this place be the safe, a place of safety and refuge when the Lord himself says that he hates sinners? How can it be a place of refuge for the guilty when no evil dwells with the Lord? How can this be safe for guilty sinners? And the answer is because of the Lord's abundant loving kindness, that little phrase in verse 7. And that word loving kindness in, in some translations or mercy or steadfast love in other translations, it can't be adequately translated using only one English word. The idea behind that is God's grace his mercy, his compassion, but also his patience with us and his faithfulness, his loyalty, and his love. The guilty sinner is welcomed into God's presence because of his steadfast love, because of his loving kindness, and because of his mercy, and because of this quality of the Lord. And God can view guilty sinners without sin and still be just. And the reason why is because this same God, because of the same attribute of him, sent his servant to justify the many so you don't have to justify yourself any longer. That his servant would bear our iniquities. That his servant would bear our transgressions. That his servant would pay for our sins. And it was this Lord's loving kindness and mercy that caused the iniquity of each one of us to fall upon Christ. And yes, it is true that God abhors the wicked and that he hates the sinner. But it's also equally true that in his mercy and in his grace, 
He has given to us his son, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that includes those sinners whom the Lord hates. And that fierce wrath of Yahweh, that God who hates all sinners, and the unrelenting love of God, that God who provides his only son to be the sacrifice for all sin, finds its intersection for us 2,000 years ago on the cross when Jesus canceled the certificate of debt written against you, when he nailed that to the cross, when Jesus gave his life to forgive us of all of our sins, and so we don't approach his house or even his presence on our own merits, but we boldly come with the merits of Christ and by the mercy of God, and we come before his throne clinging to Christ and Christ alone, who alone is our sacrifice and who alone is our savior. It's because of Jesus that we are heard and that we are able to bring our sufferings to his feet. It's because of Jesus that we are granted access into his temple. It's because of Jesus that we are able to gather here today. We don't need to justify ourselves anymore because Christ has already done that. And so we confess our sins and we rest in the finished work of Christ. And we pray along with David that the Lord would continue to lead us into righteousness, that he would make his way straight before us so that you and I won't be sidetracked by our own wicked desires, that we won't be sidetracked by the wickedness of others either, but that we would continue to take refuge in him and in him alone. So we confess our sins and we look again to Jesus, who gives to us his own righteousness. In verses 9 and 10, David once again acknowledges the wickedness that's causing him to suffer. And he asks that God would deal with them justly, that he would hold them guilty, guilty, that they would fall by their own devices, that they would receive the justice that they deserve. And David prays that their end would come. And then David once again switches gears in verses 11 through 12 and explains why believers who suffer now can be glad and can sing for joy because they take refuge in the Lord. Because the Lord is the one who shelters them. Because the Lord is the one who blesses them and surrounds the righteous man with favor. The Lord is the one who protects them. In the course of this psalm, David goes from crying and groaning to being glad and singing for joy. What is it that brings him from one extreme to the other? It's that little phrase in verse 7. The little phrase in verse 7 which says, But as for me, by your abundant Loving kindness, I will enter your house. David recognizes the Lord. He knows that the Lord knows his suffering and that the Lord is the one who acts justly. He acknowledges that he himself is unworthy to approach the Lord, but also the Lord's abundant loving kindness and mercy, and he banks everything on that. And he takes refuge in the Savior. And David, just like Paul as he is suffering, considers that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the days to come. David knows righteousness comes from Christ alone. And so he's not justifying himself here in God's presence, but he's trusting in the Lord and his mercy. David also knows he added blessings of Christ's righteousness more than bringing an end to the earthly suffering which he finds himself in and which you might be in today. It's forever dwelling in the house of the Lord in purity and righteousness, free of all wickedness, free from all evil, and dwelling with God in peace. 
David's trust is in the Lord and in the promise of the one who would come to set things right and the one who would come to set even his own sin right. To all who take refuge in the Lord, even though they suffered in this life, when the hour of death shall come, the Lord grants to them a blessed end and graciously takes us from this world of sorrow to himself in heaven. And that's a far different end from the sinners whom the Lord hates. The guilty in verse 10, who fall by their own devices. The one who rebel against the Lord will be thrust out. And the one who takes refuge in the Lord will instead be forever blessed, surrounded by the favors of God, dwelling with him in peace for all eternity. And in light of the glory to come, the suffering of this world isn't worthy to be compared to what lies ahead. And what lies ahead for the believer isn't because we justify ourselves by our own actions and our own deeds, or by saying, I'm sorry, or by saying, I didn't mean that. But this justification comes by grace through faith and through Christ alone. When the wickedness of others causes you to suffer, cry out to God who punishes the wicked. And when your own wickedness causes you to suffer, stop trying to justify yourself and make up for it. But instead, confess that sin and repent of it and rest in Jesus who has paid for your sin and who justifies you. And in your daily lives, continue to follow the Lord in his righteousness. And when we fail to do so, to take refuge in Jesus, who alone has reconciled us to God. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and we praise you for your word and for its truth. We thank you, God, for your law that it is as stern as it is. That your law reveals to us, Lord, that you do in fact hate the one who does evil the one who does wickedness, Lord, the one who sins. And as we look at your law, Lord, we know that that is us too. We thank you also, Lord, that in your word you reveal to us that you are not only a just God, a righteous God, a holy God, but you are also a loving and gracious and merciful God who has provided for us a Savior to pay the penalty for all of our sins, to die for us so that you might still be able to extend your mercy to us and still be just and the justifier for all of those in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that truth. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to seek refuge in you each and every day of our lives. And that you would help us, Lord, to stop trying to justify ourselves, but to find our identity in you. And that you would, Lord, encourage us and strengthen us and give us the words to say to describe this blessed hope with all of those that we come in contact with. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.